Amen. You may be seated. Turning your Bibles this evening to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 23. Gospel of Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 1. Give your attention now to the Word of God. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour come, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. They began to question one another, which of them? It could be who was going to do this. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, when we come to these words tonight, we come to a passage that is striking indeed. The final night for our Savior on earth. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand all the different aspects and all the different elements of things that are going on. And yet in the midst of it all is his great desire to have communion 
with his people. Oh, Lord, encourage our hearts with these truths tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text this evening is one that I find at least to be a particularly rich passage. It is literally brimming with gems of spiritual truth. Spiritual truths that are specifically designed to encourage and comfort us. And it should do that all the time, but it should do it especially in those times in which we find ourselves in the midst of trials and tribulations. Something that most of us, I would expect, encounter to one degree or another pretty much every day of our lives. How do you find peace? How do you find comfort? How do you find encouragement in those difficult times? This particular passage is one that, on the one hand, reveals to us the sheer depravity of the human heart. How could one who had spent three years sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching, learning from his example, seeing his power displayed on a daily basis, and yet that person can turn and reject all that teaching and all those examples and all those displays of godly power and betray Christ to his enemies. We see something about our own hearts and what they're capable of. But on the other hand, it sets before us and reveals to us the immeasurable depth of the grace of Christ for his elect. Because what we see here is Christ working in the hearts and lives of those disciples and of others who knew him. But what shines perhaps most brightly in this section is the way God's almighty power is thoroughly engaged in our redemption. That what Christ was doing, what is displayed both in the Passover and in the Lord's Supper is that God is at work through Christ to redeem a people for himself. And my friends, that redemption shines and comes to a wonderful picture and conclusion in the words of Christ in this passage. Here he enables Christ himself to find peace in the midst of turmoil. And by definition, we, if we follow Christ, will know the same. Well, the section or the the passage can be divided into three sections. You have them there in your bulletins. First of all, we will talk about a conspiracy among the enemies of Christ. Secondly, we're going to look at the calmness that exists within the soul of Christ. And then lastly, to talk about the consolation 
for the followers of Christ. Let's look, first of all, at this conspiracy of his enemies. I don't know if you've ever noticed how many times the scriptures speak again and again with something along the lines of, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong. Quit yourselves like men. Lift up the hands that hang down. Strengthen the feeble knees. Over and over again, the scriptures are calling us to be strengthened in the grace and power of Christ. They're calling us not to fear. It's not that there's a denial of the enemies or the turmoil or the tribulation that we face, but it tells us don't be afraid in those situations. Rather, know what it is to draw near to him who gives peace and comfort. Each of these these sections that we're going to look at show us, and particularly this first one, that we are all susceptible to discouragement, to anxiety, to fear, especially when we see the enemies of Christ mustering their manifold forces against the Lord. Every single day, if I look at the news captions on the internet, I see image after image, crowds railing against biblical truth. We hear reports of presidents, of congressmen, of Supreme Court justices openly defying the the truth of God's word or rising up against the ways of godliness. And that is precisely what is taking place here. So in in the very beginning of our passage, we read that as the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, what were the chief priests and the scribes doing? They were trying to come up with a way that they could legitimately kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? Can you fathom that? That people actually, if they, if they could get away with it, would kill Christ. These chief priests and the scribes had one major problem. Because every time Jesus came around, there were crowds of people around him. And at that moment, at least, many of those people supported him and believed in him. And so they were plotting, they were scheming, they were waiting and planning. How are we going to accomplish this? Well, then verse 3 tells us that it wasn't just the Jewish leaders who were plotting. We read these almost unbelievable words that there was one even among Christ's closest followers, his 12 disciples who had been with him since the beginning. One of them was ready to betray him. We are speaking, of course, 
of Judas Iscariot. Two things that I think we can draw from this as we consider what it is when we see the enemies of Christ gathering together. And the first is this, that the enemies of Christ do not always wear opposing colors. So I think we understand the language there and the imagery there. Imagine your favorite football game, maybe the Super Bowl. But imagine if both teams were dressed exactly alike. So instead of one being blue uniforms and one having red uniforms, they both had red uniforms, and they were exactly alike. You didn't know whether you were handing the ball to someone on the opposing team or throwing a pass to someone in the end zone who was going to turn and run the other way. The enemies of Christ don't always wear opposing colors. They don't always clearly identify as the enemies of Christ. You realize that Judas, even after Satan entered into him and he decided to betray Christ, he continued to meet with Christ and with his disciples even for the Passover. He was there. He didn't declare his opposition. He was there to betray him, to act deceitfully and maliciously. The enemies of Christ don't always identify themselves as enemies. You need to be aware of that. You need to be alert when that takes place. Secondly, it's not just wicked and deceitful men against whom we struggle. Many times we've got plenty of deceitful and wicked men. We don't have a shortage of them to deal with, to struggle against. But look again at verse 3 and realize these words go well beyond that. Then Satan entered into him. What we see here is that we don't always merely deal with men, but with principalities and powers of darkness. Indeed, we sometimes deal with Satan himself. Brothers and sisters, I'm not suggesting that we need to go around looking for a demon behind every bush. But at the same time, never, never forget the way Satan often presents himself and hides himself and disguises himself even as an angel of light. Don't forget how the Apostle Paul addresses the church at Ephesus. You remember what he says in Ephesians 6. In Ephesians 6, in verse 12, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. 
but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. The battle is not just with those whom you can clearly identify as your enemy or hostile to the things of God. Many times you need to look beyond, especially in times of conflict and stress and strain, look beyond the person that you are dealing with and realize that Satan himself may be at work in that situation. We are wrestling with principalities and powers of darkness. It's not just flesh and blood that we're dealing with. I think that what we see here frequently is the way that Satan, the devil who is mean and malicious, but he is especially wise and cunning, and he disguises himself, and he often causes minor disagreements between a husband and wife, between two close friends, to become major points of conflict and often disrupting the harmony and joy and fellowship that we would expect in that situation. My friends, in every struggle, in every conflict, be aware, be alert, be vigilant, as Peter says, because your adversary is at work. Every day he's at work and he wants to do one thing. Your adversary has one goal and that is to destroy you. You remember what Jesus says in John 10 when he's contrasting himself as the good shepherd to the thief. And what does he say in verse 10? He says the thief comes to steal, to kill and to destroy, you are going to encounter enemies. And they may not always look like enemies. And many times they are going to be propelled by the powers of darkness. Don't be deceived and don't think it's just about flesh and blood. Satan moves about like a roaring lion seeking to do one thing and that is to devour God's children. To cause as much headache, as many problems as he possibly can even in the church. Well, secondly, I want us to see a calmness in the soul of Christ. Now, this second section we are presented with a dramatic, a dramatic contrast. Because on the one hand, we see the wicked, both men and demons, joining forces together against the Lord. They are plotting, they are scheming, they have one goal, and that is to destroy Christ, to kill him, and to bring a quick and complete end to his work. In this world. And yet, in the very next breath, as it were, Luke shows us a picture of Jesus calmly 
confidently continuing to do good to the souls of men. Now that in itself is not unusual, but what really stands out here is that at the very moment when evil men were gathering together against him, he is not troubled. He is not disturbed in the slightest. In fact, it is just the opposite. He is calmly and quietly continuing to work grace in the heart of his elect, of his true disciples. He is at work in this scene. And I think Psalm 2 that we just sang so beautifully pictures this. Here are the people, here are ungodly men joining together in in rebellion, in in contrast to, to Jesus and seeking to destroy him. And what does the scripture say God does when he sees that rebellion? He laughs. When he sees all the nations and the leaders of those nations in league together against his Messiah, he laughs. It's a striking word. And I think it's the only place in the scriptures where we find God laughing. A.W. Pink's comment on that psalm It's actually in Spurgeon's book on the attributes of God, but it's one of my all-time quotes, and this is what Pink says. Were all the inhabitants of heaven and earth to unite in one combined revolt against Christ or against God, it would occasion him no uneasiness. My friends, when the enemies of Christ rail, when we see the hundreds and the thousands joining forces together against the Lord and against his anointed, God is not uneasy in the least. And Pete goes on to say, And their rebellion would have less effect upon his unassailable will than the mist from the waves of the Mediterranean upon the rock of Gibraltar. That, (laughs) brothers and sisters, that's our God. He is not even uneasy. He will not raise an eyebrow. Even if every creature, spiritual and physical, in heaven and on earth and in hell beneath, were to join together against God and against Christ, it would occasion him no uneasiness. Well, that is what we see in this passage. In verse 7, 
we have the fact that the day of unleavened bread came. The Passover must be killed on this day. This was Thursday afternoon. This was the 14th day of Nisan, according to the Jewish calendar. It was the day for the Passover to be observed. And what does Jesus tell his disciples? He sends Peter and John, and he says, Go, prepare for the Passover, in verse 8. And when they say, Where? He tells them exactly what's going to happen. You're going to walk into the city. You're going to see a man carrying a pot of water. Follow him. And go into the house where he goes in and go to the master of the house and tell him, where's the guest room? And he will show you a large upper room, fully furnished. And they found it just as he said it would be. But then in verses 14 and 15, he continues because he not only sends the disciples to prepare the Passover... One of the things I think we see here is that for Jesus, the ordinances of God, like the Passover, took precedence over all other activities. This was the day they would serve and have that Passover meal. But then Jesus, in verse 14 and 15, the hour had come. So it's an amazing picture here. He sits down with his disciples and he says to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. My friends, with all that is weighing upon Jesus' heart and Jesus' mind at this moment. He is ours from being crucified. He is ours away from bearing the wrath of God upon the cross for our sins and the sins of all his elect. And yet, at that moment, He desires, more than anything else, he desires to spend the evening with his disciples in fellowship over spiritual things. Brethren, don't miss the imagery here. Don't fail to see how much Jesus delights To be in fellowship with you as his child. Just as he longed to sit down with his disciples for this Passover meal. So he absolutely delights to spend time with you and with me in the means of grace. He wants to come and meet with us in worship. He wants to meet with us in the reading and preaching of the Word of God. He wants to meet with us in the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And I think one of the the great lessons to be learned here is that when you miss 
a service, a worship service on the Lord's Day. You're not just missing instruction from the Word of God, though that's important. You're not just missing fellowship with one another, though that's important. The most important thing is, brothers and sisters, you are missing an opportunity to meet with Jesus in fellowship around the means of grace. It's not just here that we see this. Do you remember John's vision in Revelation chapter 1? Do you remember what he sees? He is in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And what does he see? He sees and he hears of the Spirit comes and he hears a loud voice saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And he turns to see the voice that spoke with him in verse 12. And what does he see? In the midst of the seven lampstands. Now here's one of those cases where the text interprets the imagery. And he tells us later the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Those lampstands are a picture of God's people. And what does he see? In the midst of the lampstands is one like the Son of Man. Walking among his churches. My friends, Jesus loves to meet with his people in the worship of God, in the singing of hymns, in the reading of the scriptures. He meets with us. We read it in Revelation 3 and verse 20 when Jesus says to this erring church, I stand at the door and knock. And if you will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sit with you and eat and drink with you and fellowship with you. This is Christ speaking to his church. And that is the picture that we have here. Jesus loves to be near his people. He loves to meet with them in the midst of the churches. Now Jesus begins, as we go on, we see that Jesus begins this Passover meal with his disciples. There are seven parts to the Passover celebration. The first was a prayer of thanksgiving and the first cup of wine. The second was eating of bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt. Then there was the question and answers. This was the time when the child might say, what does this service mean? Why are you doing this? There would be answers and there would be explanations. The fourth element was singing. It begins singing, if I remember correctly, it was beginning with Psalm 112 or Psalm 113 as they worked through a certain portion of the Psalms in singing. So there would be singing, a second cup of wine. The fifth thing was the lamb was then cut and unleavened bread was eaten. The sixth was a third cup and the lamb was finished and their eating was complete and the seventh was more singing and a quick 
exit from the celebration, reminding them of how quickly they had to flee from Egypt. Now, each of these particular elements, in their own way, were a picture of the redemption of the people of God out of Egypt and moving out to freedom in the Lord. But mark the words, verses 16 and 18. When Jesus tells them, as they are beginning this Passover meal, I will no longer eat of this until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he takes the cup, one of the cups of the Passover meal. Take this, divide it among yourselves, for I say, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The point of this is to impress upon his disciples then and now that the next time we sit down and eat and drink with Jesus, our redemption will have been completed. That all that is symbolized in this meal is going to be fulfilled. There is going to be a full and final deliverance from sin, from death, and from Satan. All of God's redemptive purpose pictured in the Passover is going to be completed and finally fulfilled in perfection. Now, how could Jesus be at peace? How could he be calm and quiet knowing that his enemies were were meditating and thinking about how they could kill him and how they would kill him? He knew that would be the result. How could he have peace at that moment? I think at least part of the answer is because of the profound conviction that he had that all that his father had ordained would be performed. It would be completed just as he planned. And no power on earth or in heaven or in hell could thwart that plan. And Jesus knew that, and he was confident of that. And so he could, he could perhaps be thinking of the very words of the psalmist in Psalm 135, in verse 5 and 6, when he says, I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in the earth, and in the seas, and in all deep places. Everywhere, at every moment, God is working all things after the counsel of his own will. What the Lord pleases, he does. And our Savior, at that moment, knows that this work of redemption, pictured in the Passover, more fully shown in the Lord's Supper, That work 
is going to be completed in perfection. And he could rest in that. And you and I, brethren, ought to know the same blessed truth. That what God has intended for us, he will do. He will perform. The fullness of our redemption is yet to be revealed, but it will happen. And we can take confidence in that. Well, let's look at the last element, and that is a consolation for the followers of Christ. Of all the things that have taken place around the Passover, around the, the, the conspiracy of evil men against him, of all that has happened, nothing provides more comfort and more consolation to his disciples than the institution of the Lord's Supper. However, Luke's account of this has often created some confusion. Specifically in this, was Judas served the Lord's Supper? When we try to answer that question, my friends, here is an excellent example where you never take just one passage. If you have other passages that deal with it, compare Scripture with Scripture. And we need to see the whole picture here. So four things that kind of guide us through this very naughty question. Number one, remember, Luke's material is not chronological. So Luke says in verse 21, Behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. That sounds like Judas is there for the Lord's Supper. But remember, he's not arranging this material chronologically. And without giving it all away, verses 21 and 22 should have been inserted after verse 18. I'll show you why. Look at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and then we'll turn over to Mark and chapter 14. So, first of all, Matthew 26 and verse 23. Jesus answered and said, It is he who dipped his hand with me in the dish who will betray me. And then Mark. Mark chapter 14 and verse 20. He answered, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. So, Jesus identifies his betrayer as one who will dip in the dish with him. Both Matthew and Mark insert this at the end of the Passover and before the Lord's Supper is instituted. Number three, when Jesus identifies his betrayer as one who dips in the dish, understand, in the Lord's Supper, we do not dip the bread in the dish. There is no place in the Word of God that speaks of dipping anything in anything. We have the bread, we have the cup, 
and we eat and we drink. You don't dip the one in the other. You could have done that with the Passover, with the unleavened bread. Could have been dipped in a dish, could have been even dipped in a cup of wine to make even sweeter. You don't dip anything in the Lord's Supper. And the last thing that I think we need to see is John 13. Now, John does not specify an institution of the Lord's Supper. But what he does do, if we look at John 13, same thing in verse 26, when he says, Jesus answered, it is he to whom I give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the piece of bread, verse 27, Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. And what happens? Verse 30, having received the piece of bread, he, that is Judas, went out immediately. Now John doesn't even talk about the Lord's Supper. He's talking about the Passover. And as soon as Jesus gives the piece of bread that's been dipped in the dish to Judas, he says, whatever you do, do quickly. And Judas leaves the table. Judas left the Passover meal before the Lord's Supper was instituted. I think that is a consistent, biblical, proper interpretation. Judas was not at the Lord's Supper. It's inconceivable that Christ would give those elements to his betrayer. But let's look now at the words themselves. These are familiar words. Verses 19 and following, when Jesus takes bread breaks it, gives it to them, and says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he takes the cup, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Matthew says, which is shed for the remission of sin. My friends, there are many lessons that we can draw from this, and we have had multiple messages on the the institution of the Lord's Supper. What I want us to zoom in on tonight is the unspeakable comfort and consolation that Christ ordained for the church in this sacrament. He took bread. This is my body broken for you. He took the cup. This is my blood shed for the remission of sins. This is the new covenant in my blood. What does that mean? One week from today, you're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I want you to take some time this week and meditate on the promises of the new covenant. What are those promises? What does it mean? This is the The new covenant. Here is a vivid picture of the new covenant Jesus makes with his people. And that entails a number of things. Read Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. When when God says through the prophet, 
I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through faith in him. And the only way we can have that is when God regenerates us, when he takes our dead, stone-cold, rebellious hearts and changes them into hearts of flesh that seek him, that believe in him, that follow him. I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It involves sanctifying grace. I will give you the Holy Spirit. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. It's not because we're so great that we obey God. It's because he gives his spirit and puts that spirit within us and causes us to walk in obedience to his statutes. It is assurance of cleansing and forgiveness when he tells us that the blood of Jesus washes us from all our sins and iniquities. So think about those passages. Think about Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10. Listen to the promise of the new covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind. That's a work of grace. When God, as part of his redeeming plan, writes his word and his laws upon our minds. I will put my laws in their minds, write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 12, he says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. My friends, take those promises and meditate upon them this week to help you be ready to taste and see that the Lord is good when you meet for the Lord's table. Here is a covenant meal that presents the chosen ones with his redeeming grace in Christ, and it does so more fully and more clearly and more richly than the Passover ever could. Because it shows us that every purpose of God in redemption has been accomplished by Christ. And it will be fulfilled perfectly. This ordinance not only reminds us of Christ's death, but it reminds us of the consolation and the assurance that we have that we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And nothing, no power on earth, no power in heaven, no power in hell can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Glory, glory be to his name. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you.
how we thank you for this wonderful passage that though evil, wicked men raged against you, your purposes stand firm. And that work of Christ pictured it first in the Passover meal and then in the institution of the Lord's Supper shows us that our redemption will be perfected according to your purpose and plan from before the foundation of the world. Be it so, to your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Let's take a moment and think upon these blessed truths.